0: welcome to Behind the Glass Cabinet, a podcast where I, Ellie Armstrong, explore how science is constructed and displayed in museums. Each week, I'll be joined by a co-host for a conversation about a particular item you can go and see in a London museum. Together, we'll challenge, dissect and celebrate the stories the artefact could tell. week, I've gone to join my guest co-host at the National Maritime Museum.
1: Hello, my name is Sasha Coward and I'm a freelance museum worker. Um, I used to work until very recently at the National Maritime Museum. I was there for about three and a half years, um, wherein I developed a bit of an obsession about a particular piece of folklore which we will be talking about today um, I also got to do loads of queer stuff so I helped run our LGBT History Month um, and opened kind of well worked on opening four new galleries and I managed to sneak in a few queer stories there as well
0: which I think we'll get to discuss during the course of this episode hopefully <laughs> yes so Sasha what piece have you brought for our um, listeners today
1: um, I have brought a painting and by a woman called Evelyn de Morgan and it is called Sea Maidens now if you want to go and see Sea Maidens you've got to get yourself on the DLR to Greenwich and then head to the Queen's House which is free right next to the National Maritime Museum and when you go onto the ground floor the big great hall just turn left as you're looking out the windows towards Canary Wharf and you'll come to a gallery and right at the end is this rectangular painting um, which is called Sea Maidens um,
0: can you describe this painting to our listeners, please?
1: Yeah, so there are five figures in Siemens. Five five women are represented and they are all mermaids. Mm. Um, and so they're all partially submerged and kind of interlinked and intertwined. Um, the best kind of analogy I can think of, if you, do you know that Kylie Minogue video when they're all crawling all over each other? <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> it's a little bit like that. It's it's a very sensuous painting, so it's very languid. If you, if you look at the style, um, they're all kind of resting on each other um, they are at least touching one of the other figures but some of them are touching multiple figures
0: yeah, and they've got this lovely like handhold kind of mm. going all the way through one of them's got their arms draped around yes. the other very touchy Yes. But in so a in a non non-predatory non yes. not non-sexual just non I don't know
1: the word provocative th- yeah it's it's sensual rather than sexual. sexual
0: yeah that's nice
1: there's there's you know there's definitely a, a sensuality to it you know the the, the kind of the, the lines and and the, and the closeness is very mm. intimate and and it is very um powerful um they're kind of you know stroking caressing each other leaning on each other um but it, it isn't necessarily completely kind of um the way that if you look at the way the figures are looking for example they're not looking directly at you as Mm -hmm. the viewer so it's not like they want to be watched they're sort of engaged in their own activity Um, and there is a warmth there among all the figures um, which you can interpret in many different ways. Yep. Like it could be sexual, um, or it could just be familial or just really kind of really closeness, a love. There's yeah. definitely love, love there.
0: Yeah, and mm. it's unclear like what necessarily what type of love. Because what's the story based on?
1: Well, if we go with the, the, the kind of the allegory that the painting is based on, it, it goes on with kind of sisterly love because these are all sisters. Um, which may explain one feature that, that does jump out, which is that they all have the same face, or are they all painted at least from the same model which is something we'll come back to yeah, in a which, moment
0: and it's interesting because you say this and i didn't notice that they were mm. all the same person to start with so for me the sisters make sense in terms of what the artist is trying to achieve yes. so that's interesting
1: so you're you're right if you look at the faces that you know one is in terms of the direction the shadow and, and the way they're painted that they're, they're not identical but if you look at the features you'll, you'll see they're all very shared Okay. so the, the, the aim of, of Evelyn we can, we can imagine is to create the impression of sisters, People these mm-hmm. these mermaids are closely related um, but they are all painted off a single model who was called Jane Hales um, and Jane Hales was painted many many times by Evelyn de Morgan um, so she, she used a number of models and she would often paint the female form but probably the most predominantly featured model was Jane Hales Also, we know that they had a very intimate and passionate relationship. Now, I wouldn't want to use the term lesbian here because firstly, that term wasn't in existence, but more importantly, it's inaccurate. Um, So Evelyn was married to a man, um, but also seemed to have a relationship with Jane. So the closest thing we can talk about would be biromantic. She definitely had affections, at least visibly for for, for both genders. Um, And so the relationship between her and Jane seems to be Really present in a lot of her paintings where she paints Jane in really sensuous ways, but in particular, this painting where she's painted over and over and over again, interacting with herself.
0: Yeah, in slightly different positions, mm. showing different parts of her body. Yes. It's very interesting.
1: Really, really fascinating painting. It, it is a beautiful piece. Um, and it's worth saying that another painting of Jane Hales, uh, which was by Evelyn de Morgan, ended up in the Tate's recent exhibition, Queer British Artist, um, which, you know, so she is kind of known as being a symbol of 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 someone who really admired and aspired to the female form. Um, The really nice thing about the story as well, and I only found this out recently, is if you find where um, Evelyn de Morgan is buried, um, she is buried next to her husband, but right on the other side there is Jane Hale. So the three are buried in a line. So we're talking of a a really interesting relationship that must have flown between all three of them.
0: Yeah, which is interesting, this idea of more than a uh, maybe a, a heteronormative pairing of two mm. people. Um, it's kind of like slightly polyamorous three-person situation is yes. reflected really interestingly in this painting with this figure like you said at the start, touching at least one other person, like at least one, in most cases, two other people, mm. um, it, two others of themselves yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in this painting here.
1: Yeah, the, the relationship that, that seems to come across is one that is very fluid and open. Mm. Um, from from this painting, anyway, I, I think it's really important to talk about you know both of the relationships that she had at least in her life because there is a lot of um, times and paintings where, particularly with the queer community, we try to say oh, this person was sleeping or, or, or was interested in this person of the same gender, therefore they are now gay or mm. they are lesbians. And I understand that the desire to do that because we so... so seldom see ourselves reflected in paintings like that but it does result in bi erasure so you know the the only thing we do know about evelyn is that she had affections for both genders Mm. so bi romantic is the most accurate and inclusive term that we can probably use Uh, but it's still a wonderful expression of of queer uh, affection
0: exactly and the painting isn't just jane as she is normally um no, nope. the bottom the Here's a tail well it's not it's not properly a tail, is it because it's it's just the tops of some scales.
1: Yes, so it's quite subtle. So you see it kind of disappearing beneath the surface and you see the kind of intimation of scales leading Mm -hmm. downwards. Um, So the reason that she is a mermaid and the reason there are so many of her and the reason that they're meant to be sisters is because this is a scene that is taken from Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. Um, It is worth saying that this is a scene that isn't depicted in full in the book. It's, It's only sort of hinted at. Whereas Ariel, who I'm using the Disney term here, but the the lead character of The Little Mermaid, her older sisters are allowed to go up to the surface and spy on the mortal realm. Um, And they go up to the surface, have a look, and then they always return down below. Um, And and Ariel is, is really jealous that her older sisters get to do this and she's not old enough to do that yet. So what we're looking at are Ariel's sisters who are sort of coming to the surface and sort of languishing and observing our world. Um, Another thing that's really worth saying is, you know, as someone who's quite obsessed with mermaids, um, a lot of depictions of mermaids are always in reference to men. So you will have a mermaid uh, dragging a sailor beneath the sea or or beckoning like a siren to a whole crew. Um, But there is always a man intimated in the image because um, mermaids exist in in many forms as a sort of like a, a symbol of... Of, of, of femininity in response to all male environments at sea. So, you know, this is the sexy lady beckoning me to my demise. Um, <laughs> so it's really lovely to have a painting with five women and no men, and they don't seem to be even interested. interested.
0: <laughs> yeah, in, in the what one might presume at the time would be male mm. audience as well. And you said that they're coming up to visit, but like you mentioned, they're going back down, yes. they're not interested in staying. And that's quite interesting in the way that the painting is framed. So they're all sitting below this horizon Mm. line. They're not part of the landscape. There isn't, there isn't much land in the painting either. It's basically just these. Yeah. his torsos in the sea
1: and uh, yeah they they are they look like they're going to resubmerge and, and, and if you look at the story these, these sisters of Ariel they're not too interested in staying up there they have their own lives beneath the sea um, also when you look at images of mermaids a lot you have the classic comb and the mirror and the symbols of vanity now whilst these are beautiful gorgeous representations of women and they are very sensuous you get the sense they're not showing off for the viewer they're not even really interacting with you they're too involved with themselves so yeah they they are representing this this story and probably the most famous story of mermaids in the western world which is the little mermaid Ah. um and i think most of us know the little mermaid from the disney adaptation and we'll yes. come to that again in a moment which <laughs> is also a deeply queer story um but the little mermaid itself was written by hans christian anderson and it is a children's story but like many children's stories i and you know, look up those grim fairy tales it is grim
0: it is not a pleasant story it is
1: so so dark so let me just give you a bit of a recap but i would recommend go and find it online and give it a read it won't take here, 45 minutes and um it's it's really worth reading if you can't remember it but a few things that really jump out one When the Little Mermaid uh, gives her voice away to the Sea Witch, um, it isn't through some sort of uh, nice esoteric conjuring as in the Disney film. She has her tongue cut out. What? Yeah, so physically cut out. So you can imagine the excruciating pain. Yeah. And then also um, when she gets her legs, um, they are cursed. So every single step she takes is described as like walking on broken glass. So... Every step she takes in the land of men um, is is painful. It's excruciating. Um, And also we come to the ending, and I'm sorry, spoilers, but um, she does not get her prince in the end. Um, She dies, and she is turned into seafoam. Now, as an added thing, it is fully described that mermaids, in, in his depiction, do not have a soul in the same way as humans. So when they die, they don't go to heaven. They just turn into sea foam. So it is unsure about whether the little mermaid does ascend to heaven or whether she just disappears and winks out of existence.
0: And that's because her prince doesn't fall in love with her does
1: not fall in love with her and she sacrifices herself for him and he falls in love with someone else
0: oh my goodness this is much sadder than the disney film you, you have to
1: have the sense that children at that stage must have just been much hardier than we were yeah.
0: i mean hans christian Andersen writes a number of deeply saddening oh, God. Um, little
1: match girl yeah the yeah. snow queen yeah
0: i mean he's a he's a a, a sorrowful man yeah um in many respects
1: So, you know, the the moral of this story, kids, is don't go and have your tongue cut out by a sea witch. Uh, It doesn't end up well.
0: No, Um, sadly. (laughs) But but Hans Christian Andersen wasn't writing this as kind of unrelated to the rest of his life
1: yeah this happened at a really particular moment in in his life and um hans was a really interesting fellow luckily he's one of those people that kept quite intimate diaries so we get some understanding of what was going on in his head and he also wrote letters he was a real avid letter writer um so kind of reading this you can see what his relationships were with people um so hans like evelyn would best be described by romantic he seemed to fall in love or to have affections for men and for women um, and he would write these florid beautiful letters to both the one thing that he was really into by the appearances was rejection
0: <laughs> he
1: would always go for um, those people that um, he could not get a hold of the kind of unattainable people um, so men and women that were either out of his league or not interested or already married all this kind of stuff now one of these people was a guy called Edward Cullen uh not to be confused with the character in Twilight um when you search Edward Cullen you'll get a lot of pictures of bloody Twilight just a warning um so he wrote to this 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 gentleman repeatedly and he used some phrases such as um I love you like a Calibrian woman um and it was quite sexual in the terminology, so it's quite clear where his emotions lie. Mm. And Edward did respond up until a stage where he basically, and I am massively paraphrasing, said something along the lines of, I'm, I'm really sorry, Hans, but I can't reciprocate the level of emotion um, that you have for me. Um, but, but I am getting married. Um, so you can just imagine that you know Hans is, is obsessed with this man. He's fallen in love with this man. And he's writing these beautiful letters is basically dumped. Um, And so he runs off to the island of Finn, wherein he writes the original manuscript of what will slowly become The Little Mermaid. So thinking of his mindset, so this is a man who has reached out and shared a lot of himself with another man and has been rejected. And then writes this story about a half formed creature, part of one world but not quite, who is cursed, who is silenced, who has her voice taken away from her, and who does not get the prince. Yeah, in who is
0: ultimately rejected by the person that she sacrificed and chased after. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Gave
1: everything for.
0: Don't use those phrases. This is so sad. I
1: know. That's the point. It's, oh. it's ruddy tragic. Um, but it's also incredibly beautiful that he managed to turn this kind of pain into possibly um, the saddest uh, queer love letter that was never sent, which is The Little Mermaid. Um, and so you can see that as like his thesis of his love for Edward Cullen. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's a really beautiful backbone to this story, that this is a story built off the pain of queer rejection. Yeah. Um, something maybe on some level we can all empathize with, um. But then, of, of course, this, this is a, a, a story that has been told over and over again, but Hans really popularized this image of a mermaid. Prior to this, they were temptresses and sirens and these, these kind of otherworldly creatures that were symbolic of um, kind of female beauty and the mysteries and danger of the sea. But he created a single little mermaid, yeah. a fragile and sensitive, very human character, um, and that has since become the, the character we see painted by people like Evelyn Morgan yep. and in films such like as that the little of Disney mermaid. like the Little Mermaid by ah, Disney.
0: Fantastic. So this grows into the kind of story that we see there. Yes and the way that it's depicted in the Disney film is is different tells a different type of story but is is probably commensurate in sadness at least at the start. <laughs> Um There are certainly some deeply tragic tragic parts to that story as well. She still doesn't fit in yeah she still has to sacrifice I mean not her tongue in this case, but her voice
1: mm-hmm. yeah, she, she gives everything yeah everything to be to be part of a world that doesn't fully want her understand her and then again that there is um yeah there there is this deeply queer story even to the disney film so the disney film has a happy ending where she gets with eric and they get married and she gets that you know if you watch the film there's a great scene at the end where triton waves his his triton in the air and he makes a massive rainbow yes which is so great if you're talking about queerness. So if you ever do a screening of that during LGBT History Month, you will get the biggest cheers um, <laughs> from experience. So, the, the 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 thing to remember is, whilst this is an adaptation and many people were working on this, um, one of the, the people who was really influential in how the story was told by Disney was Howard Ashman. And um, Howard Ashman uh, was an ex kind of. Um, Musical writer and performer uh, and he wrote a lot of the songs uh, for Disney's The Little Mermaid and also helped with some of the characterization so Howard Ashram was a gay man um, and he um, sadly contracted HIV during the creation of The Little Mermaid and actually passed away a bit later whilst working on Beauty and the Beast which was the next film that he was involved in um, and so when you see the kind of the film through his eyes you realize this is a man who, one, is, is queer, so has all of that sense of rejection, particularly when you think back to sort of the, the kind of the time period, late 80s, early 90s, um, which is a very different world to now. And he is seeing his friends and his, his, his loved ones even pass away by this mysterious il- illness, which is taking so many of the queer community. Um, and, and during this, he's writing songs such as Part of Your World. Um, so it's, it's a song, it's a lament about something that is, is unreachable, like trying to be part of a world that doesn't want you or trying to be part of a world that you can't fully connect with.
0: Yeah, that you don't understand. There are all these objects that she has that she doesn't quite get, mm. she doesn't see their relevance to her life and how she should live yeah that's really interesting
1: yep and 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 she's she's held back and she can't have the object of her desire um and 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 so when you see this through the eyes of of a queer man of the time um it it suddenly again it becomes incredibly sad and poignant i would highly recommend um going on to, to to youtube and and searching um howard ashman and uh searching for his uh versions of the disney songs because he voiced them originally so before they were um voiced by the female performer um he actually sung them and hearing him sing part of your world and then thinking about what that may have meant to him oh the (laughs) feels You, you get some serious feels
0: yeah
1: um So Howard Ashman wrote a number of songs and he he even wrote directly about the HIV crisis. He writes about a particular square in New York um, where he he basically, the song is about going there and it being really quiet. And he lists the names of, of all the men he's known who've passed away. Um, because of the HIV crisis, and there's the, it's an incredibly powerful song, so you know this was playing on his mind. Mm. He's losing all of his friends, and then he himself gets sick. Um, and it is important for us to remember that HIV was a very different beast to what it is today. It is mm. still a life changing experience, but at this time, it was this mysterious illness that was taking people, um, and no one knew. How to how to predict it, or how to was there a cure, and and why was it just affecting this particular population? Mm. So hugely powerful. Yeah. Um, and,
0: and he doesn't just work on the Little Mermaid because we were talking earlier about the Beauty and the Beast.
1: Yeah. So he he then goes on to 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 work on the on the Beauty and the Beast, but, but sadly passes away before it's finished. And um, there is a beautiful acknowledgement at the end of Beauty and the Beast, which says, you know, in in, in remembrance of um, Howard Ashman. Who taught a, a beast to love, and um, gave a mermaid her voice, uh, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is also in working on that film, on Beauty and the Beast, there are symbols that he brought to this. He's known to have um, be the mind behind the, the flower. So if you remember in the in the film, the beast has this rose in a glass jar, and every day a petal falls and it slowly decays. And as it decays, so so does he. And and if the last petal falls, then he will be trapped mm-hmm. in this body, right? This this non-human body. Mm-hmm. And then we have to remember that you know Howard at this time was seeing his body as. trap like it you know his his body was malfunctioning it was falling apart it was decaying he was getting sick um you know his hair was falling out all kinds of horrible things going on and also he was approaching his own mortality um he'd seen so many friends go before him and and here he was so the rose as a decaying symbol of his own mortality again really poignant and powerful i would recommend um watching that film again with, with thinking through the eyes of howard yeah. yeah.
0: Definitely. Now, we've been talking about Hans Christian Andersen because his story with the sisters is is some of the inspiration for the painting that we've been looking at. But um, he's not the only one who talks about mermaids, um, not even in the West. I mean, you alluded earlier to, to where mermaids have been seen before um, Hans starts writing about them. Mm.
1: So, so mermaids, definitely not created by the West, definitely popularized uh, by Hans Christian Andersen and Disney. The, the, the image that you search on, on Google, it's really interesting. If you look up mermaids, you'll notice that most of them have red hair. That's a Disney thing. That wasn't the case before. Um, but, but mermaids, they may not be called mermaids, but half women, half men and half fish and sea creatures um, exist across history and across the world. Um, so obviously the mermaids that, that we think of, they, they're largely influenced by the Greco-Roman tradition, um, where you have mermen, mermaids, tritons, uh nyads they're also called um hippocampi that's half horse half half fish the literal seahorses um yeah i know there's a nice little science reference nice yeah (laughs) um but also like as sicilian um sea witches which is what ursula comes from uh so she is half octopus and half woman
0: and what kind of things do they stand for in this western tradition
1: they are the mysteries and dangers of the sea so the idea of when you would look across the horizon across the sea in the past it is kind of like gazing into out of space mm-hmm. what's out there strange creatures the unknown yeah. um and if you look at maps so at the national maritime museum there's a huge collection of, of cartography you have the classic sea monsters in the corner the, the here be dragons and this is this is terra extrania and all of this kind of thing and, and mermaids from the in those as who knows? Ships would sail out and you would never know if they'd come back again. Just like NASA spending, you know, spaceships in, in, into the sky. There's, there's so many parameters that couldn't be fully controlled. It was a scary and terrifying environment.
0: Well, and at the Queen's house, there's a portrait of Elizabeth the mm-hmm. First
1: that has yep.
0: a little mermaid in the sea behind her.
1: Yes, yeah. It's about,
0: like, the armada and the kind of trauma of the sea and sea voyaging, so...
1: Well, she was kind of... Uh, uh, connected with mermaids because she was kind of a siren so the mm. idea was that she was this female force redhead yeah redhead and uh, and the beckoning or calling on the Spanish armada, and they would be dashed or destroyed by the storms. Ah, so that's it's interesting. A, it's a symbol of hers to show her power as a female force of the sea.
0: Wow. Okay. And yeah. that's not the only time that mermaids are the like kind of female force of the sea.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, a lot of the time they are not quite as empowered as that. <laughs> um, so generally. Um, the Navy, the merchant Navy ships were seen as largely all male environments. And we know that's not always the case. There are some wonderful stories of cross-dressing pirates and whatnot, but that's a different story.
0: That's another, that's another podcast. Another po-
1: pardon me as I belch, <laughs> another podcast altogether. Um, but you know, largely these were, these were single sex environments. And uh, in fact, women aboard ship, but was often seen as unlucky, like you you shouldn't go aboard a ship. The only woman on the ship was the ship herself. She was the female force. So men at sea, um, you know, who are um, apparently all heterosexual, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, largely heterosexual and are um, kind of, Putting their their lust and 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 their their romance for women onto this blank blue void, they start to see women everywhere. So, including
0: in the manatees, including
1: in manatees and dolphins. So you, you get mermaids, which are basically the kind of sexual frustrations of men, kind of put onto the sea. Um, so they are the kind of the the women that might be waiting for you, and they become very lascivious and sexy creatures, and are there for your consumption.
0: And got the mirror they've got the yes. comb. they're very vain and and like you say like a siren calling yes calling the man towards them
1: exactly there's, there's a lot that could be said for you know the, the, the men are completely um they cannot be blamed for the way they behave because the, the siren beckons you you know they are they are completely un, unable to control their behaviors
0: much like kiss the girl in yeah. the little mermaid oh my gosh oh just no. i've just heard that in my mind and made yep. that connection that's a horrible thing. Sha-la-la-la,
1: don't be shy. She's
0: like drawing him in without any, without any speech. She can't
1: speak. No, she can't even speak, no. and, and that song is incredibly problematic. I mean, it's
0: horribly problematic, but like that's interesting that that idea of the siren tempting the man. Yes, is very much still present in that that story in in the contemporary retelling.
1: And here's a powerful thing as well. What does she tempt the man with? What's her only weapon? It's her huh. song. Yep. And what does she have taken away from her? It's her voice.
0: So she's got her looks, her pretty face.
1: <laughs> Don't <laughs> underestimate <laughs> <laughs> the uh, body language. Yeah, thank you, Wershia. Yeah.
0: So these are these are the types of depictions we see in the West. They're yep. often um, white-skinned creatures. Yes. Um, but they're not the only times that we see mermaids in history.
1: Not at all. So across the world, there are depictions of mermaids. So some of the, the, the really powerful and inter- interesting ones I've come across. Um, York Yorks are a very mermaid-like creature that exists in Aboriginal... Um, kind of societies in Australia uh, York Yorks are not pretty they are hideous and they eat and take children um, and they're called York Yorks because that's the sound that they make oh York York. Yeah, I like it. yeah they're, they're kind of very much the dark kind of side of mermaids mm-hmm. and then you have um, Mami Wata so Mami Wata are elemental spirits um, of the kind of sea and sky and they're often depicted with, with fish like tails or serpent like tails um, and they come from West Africa um, and and also you, you get them in Jamaican cultures as well, Creole Creole as well. Yeah. Um, and they are very much, they embody the sort of the Ursula side. So they, they're all about negotiation. So you can um, make promises to them, but you have to fulfill your side of the bargain. They will do things for you, but they want something in return. They're collectors and hoarders of objects, mm. which I wonder whether that's a little bit of where... Um, Ariel's kind of treasure trove comes from
0: Ooh, yeah
1: and then you have uh, an Inuit culture the the story of Sedna so Sedna was a a young woman or or girl in different tellings uh, she's drowned or has her fingers cut off and she sinks below the depths and ends up becoming basically a guardian of the sea and the underworld Uh, so a kind of goddess and she's often depicted as having a fish tail or an orca tail Mm. Um, and there's like a beautiful carving that's um, in the British Museum collection I don't think it's on display but if you go and search Sedna on their collections online it's a really nice example so women and men with fish tails yes they, they occur all over pretty much every single culture
0: mm-hmm. and they're not they're not kind of uh, what we might like we've been talking about with this painting they're kind of um more hyper-feminine and Mm. hyper-masculine compared to maybe a a regular depiction. I mean, you can definitely see this in The Little Mermaid in the way that Triton is depicted. And you can see it in the painting we're looking at with the way that these these women are painted as well. Um, He's a total
1: beefcake, is Triton. Yeah, Yeah. he's... (laughs) The, the, the classic depiction is, is very much um, this interesting thing where the, the upper half of the mermaid or merman is, is hyper-gendered, like you said. So the, the average merman is super buff. Like, he has been hitting the gym hard and then protein shakes. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: like the idea of, like, exactly. weights.
1: Although, like, you know, under the water would be
0: really yeah right. <laughs> right, exactly. You'd have to do, like, twice Lifting the... them shipwrecks. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and then you've got the kind of the mermaids, and they are so feminine and curvaceous and, and mm-hmm. sensual and they, they're beautiful examples of you know they are painted so lovingly and often very sexual um so you have this hyper gendered upper half and then the lower half is is genderless like we know from science that fish have genders but in these depictions there are no genitalia they are just fishy bodies yeah and
0: that they're were, the same they're the same yes. fishy bodies for the man yeah men in air quotes, you can't see them, um, and women in air quotes.
1: Exactly the same. The the funny thing is nowadays, if you look at modern representations, we even try to gender the lower half. So you'll see that a lot of mermen have shark tails, or whale tails, and then then because women. Because
0: the shark is just more masculine,
1: masculine. <laughs> exactly. God. What? oh god, masculinity so fragile. <laughs> um, but but traditionally, yes, you're right. They they unisex. They they look exactly the same from the waist down. You couldn't tell what whether you're looking at a mermaid or a merman just from the tail, um, which is fascinating because it makes them these really interesting symbols where they are incredibly gendered and then incredibly genderless, which kind of leads on to. Um, We've spoken a lot about sexuality and we've linked this with uh, both uh, a man and a woman who were probably biromantic and and a gay man, um, but also looking at, at gender fluidity in the transgender community
0: you've been doing some work with the trans community at the maritime museum
1: yes yes i have so um i, I knew uh three years ago we, we embarked on the project to look at representations in the museum and i really wanted to work with the transgender community to to make um our understanding of our collections from that perspective better um so i approached uh gendered intelligence and they, they kindly gave me a list of a number of different organizations and groups in the uk and the one that jumped out to me was called mermaids uk <laughs> like
0: it was It was made for you. It was
1: made for me. And uh, I I looked at it and was thinking, well, you know, I I have this huge list, but I'm going to email these guys first just because I need to know why they're called mermaids. And um, luckily, they were really responsive and really interested in being involved. They are a fantastic organization. I'll come back to them in a a, a bit. Um, But I spoke to one of the parents at a residential and, and asked them, you know, why are you called mermaids? Where does this come from? And she basically said that there is a kind of recurring trait where young, particularly children, who are gender fluid or or not binary, um, tend to associate with mermaids. So they they have the dolls and the toys and they watch the little mermaid film and they like the story. Um, And then the understanding for this is because uh, a mermaid is a creature of transformation. They change from one form into another.
0: Especially in The Little Mermaid, as we canonically understand it.
1: Exactly, yeah. yes. And particularly in the Hans Christiansen, post-Hans Christiansen examples of mermaids. But also think about selkies as well. So that's the Irish mythology of uh, um, women who shed their skins and turn into seals. Transformation and magic are yeah. pretty core to mermaids. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The, the ability to change form, the fact that they are gendered, like Ariel is clearly gendered, she is her, she is female, she is beautiful, but her genitalia are completely irrelevant. You don't see them and they're, they're not a part of what makes her Ariel. Um, and as well as that, they are, they are loved you know, if you think of how the trans community is often represented in, in, in a lot of tabloid press um, and the way they have in the past as being sort of monstrous or deviant or different, um, a mermaid is a, is a beautiful creature and, and and people love mermaid stories. So you can imagine as, as a child that is struggling uh, with their gender identity, a creature who can transform, whose gender is not tied to their skin, mm-hmm. who is loved and who is a plucky character character as well like why not yeah so mermaids it, it, and mermen in fact are a powerful symbol for this this organization and yeah. for these kids
0: and just to circle back to the little mermaid a little bit more this idea of performative gender is really clearly seen in kind of the way that Ursula is depicted because we know that Ursula isn't based on No, On a woman, Ursula is based on a drag queen.
1: She is, yeah. So Mm -hmm. as a bit of backstory, another thing that Howard Ashman, uh, who worked on Disney's Little Mermaid, brought to the table um, was a bit of drag culture. So Ursula is based on Divine. Uh, There are some beautiful images you can look up where you can see the original illustrations of Ursula alongside some photographs of divine that we use to inspire her and look at the way that she is made up look at her body language look at her form and you'll see there is a real connection there mm. Yeah. She's very
0: confident and flamboyant in a totally performative way.
1: Yes, yes. She is very comfortable in her body. And, she, you know, the, it's one of the more, you know, that there is a scene in, in the film that was almost cut uh, where it zooms into her chest as she's kind of gyrating. It's a really raunchy, performative gender. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the is, there is an example of drag in, in a Disney film. Which is fantastic. Yeah,
0: which is nice coming back to this idea of gender being something that doesn't have to be tied to a sex.
1: Yep, um,
0: yep. For these children in Mermaids UK.
1: Yeah, after spending some time uh, with Mermaids UK and getting to, to, to visit some of the families and children at um, the residentials um, and kind of earning their trust, because like I said, this is an organisation that's had a real pounding from the tabloid press. Like, it's been incredibly cruel. Um, so finally getting them um, to, to be willing to come visit the museum and start to look at our collections um, from the perspective of, of gender fluidity. So, the goal of the project I was involved with was to create a representation um, of of different communities that aren't normally visible in our museum. And so do
0: you have anything else in your museum then that talks about trans identity?
1: Yeah, so we, we we brought out a number of things from our collection that we thought would resonate with them. So um, examples are, um, for example, Anne Bonnie who is a cross-dressing pirate. Um, so she is um, a, a woman who briefly lived her life as a man, and then later um, when she, she left um, piracy, she she returned to being a woman again, but her gender changed. Uh, in fact, she had... Um, uh, relationships with other cross-dressing pirates at the same time, so there's a real wonderful. It's quite Shakespearean, you know. Everyone is changing identities all the time, and this comes back to to what I was saying about it is an illusion that um, that these ships of the past were single-gendered environments. They weren't, um, which is great. Um, and then there's also t- stories like we have uh, in the National Archives. There is. Um, some some writing which talks about a Seaman William Brown and Seaman William Brown. And again, this is where you get to the complexity of talking about gender using records. The only thing we know about Seaman William Brown is that they were um, basically evicted from the Navy. Uh, on account of their sex. So we can presume that some sort of inspection happened, some sort of medical process, and this person was in the time deemed to be a woman and therefore no longer allowed to serve aboard the Navy. Um, So then we end up with this interesting situation of was this the first black woman who served aboard the Navy? Or was this a black man who served aboard the Navy? Or was this a gender-fluid person? Uh, and, and, and all of that yeah, thing
0: someone who's intersex or
1: exactly uh, we, we don't have enough enough information to, to, to fully look into that but it was a story that we brought out for these young people to kind of talk about this is some of the non gender binary stuff that was going on we looked at the crossing the line ceremony which to this day is still part of the navy when you cross the equatorial line there is a ceremony that you go through part of which is absolutely bizarre and involves shaving your chest and, and all kinds of weirdness um but there is also an element of drag so there is a king and queen of the sea and the queen of the sea is generally played by a man so there is there is again performative gender going on there are photographs in our collection of um male sailors performing as, 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 as women. And, and some of it is clearly, you know, it's difficult to read too much into a black and white photograph, but some of it is clearly performative. I guess it's what we would understand as drag, Mm -hmm. like it is performative gender. And some of it is very sensitively done and it is much more, you know, it's much more difficult to know exactly what is going on behind there because it is, it is more about female impersonation Mm -hmm. and less about female performance performance so gender identity again how did these people gender themselves
0: and i think this was when we talk about this maybe it sounds like we're talking about this in the distance past Mm. in the context of you know ye old pirates in the 18 1700s but this is also something that was subject of an exhibition in a lot of seafaring towns recently like margate called hello sailor yes um which looked a lot at these kind of um kind of under current LGBT communities that existed in the Navy, in the Merchant Navy, um, and in other seafaring in other seafaring bodies. Yeah,
1: I, I'm, I'm raging wildly across time because we're talking about you know uh, the, the, the 21st century, the 20th century. Mm-hmm. These photographs were taken in the kind of uh, 1920s mm-hmm. that I'm talking about. The ceremonies I'm talking about are still happening today. Mm-hmm. Um, we can go all the way back to molly houses which would often be associated with the docks. You know, they were frequented by sailors. There are phrases that come up, of, up uh, over and over Again, like rum sodomina lash is an association with the navy. Mm. Um we have um uh, sodomy records. So these are records in, in, the, in the maritime collection, um, which basically talk of, of, of men who are convicted of sodomy, which is basically non procreative sex but is is code for same sex interactions. Um, and the different levels of punishment that would happen because sometimes these would be allowed to go and sometimes these would not be. So, yeah, there is a full range of gender and sexual identities playing out um, at sea, probably in some ways more so, they were more uh, permissive than other environments.
0: And less less regulated, I guess, more than yeah. anything else. Like, there just wasn't a court aboard a ship and they were away for, like, four months at a time. So, you know...
1: The story I often hear is, you know, if you are aboard a ship and you have your you know your crew and you're trying to survive, and one of your crew, um, you know, there are two, two members who are sleeping together and they are the same sex, and it is no one is being hurt and no one is upset, why would you kick off about it? And yep. if you have a particular... Um, um, a member of your crew who likes to perform and dress or dress a certain way or gender. Why would you kick up a fuss? You're in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. You've got more things to worry yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Like
0: there are bigger problems. There are bigger fish to fry. Ah, uh-huh. I see what you did there. So you brought out these objects, these are uh, these um yeah. artifacts, these historical records for your the young people that you were working with at Mermaids UK.
1: Yeah. And and they were very interested in these these artifacts, but they very much stated that they wanted would have an opportunity to create their own story Mm -hmm. and as trans youth so we're talking ranging from the age of eight up to about 21 real real range of ages um they were quite keen that their voice wasn't the same as the voice 40 years ago Mm -hmm. or 300 years ago and then whilst the story of Anne bonnie the cross-dressing female pirate is fascinating had absolutely nothing to do with you know trying to get estrogen Yes. Like you know, there, there was a, a completely different um, lived experience. So whilst they, they find it fascinating, they wanted to work on their own narrative. And so they took the core of their name, Mermaid's UK, and they looked at symbolism of mythical creatures and mm. monsters. Um, I think there was a sense of we have been depicted as monstrous. Mm-hmm. So how can we reown that? Yeah. Um, so what they wanted to create was a genderless entity um and the end result was working with the incredible artist eve shepherd um, from brighton who's a, a queer artist herself um to kind of translate their understanding their drawings and ideas and writings and recordings into a single piece which is now a uh, a bronze bust that is on display at the national maritime museum and they created um a person of the sea and it is inspired by by stories such as mermaids, but it is not a mermaid itself. It is its own creature.
0: No, and, and more than anything, having seen this the bust at the Maritime Museum, one of the ways that it's not the same as the canonical mermaid is that it doesn't have the same idea of performative gender. Yes. It's yes. very genderless, in yes. this, in, captured by the name Person of the Sea, but it's very... Uh, fluid
1: yeah this is um quite exciting because it is now in permanent uh part of the museum's collection um but it is the first depiction of a person that is intentionally gender neutral so this is our first piece that is a they it is not a he it is not a she and it is definitely not an it Mm -hmm. um and so that's that's a really powerful thing that's like changed our entire mimsy collection record yep. like how we talk about this is yep. an entirely different way um it is also has a voice so you can press a button and listen to to, to them speak and it is voiced by a, a member of mermaids UK which is really great
0: and not in isolation because this statue kind of speaks to the other statues around it yes
1: they defend their position and and why they're there and talk a little bit about their own kind of um, fluid identity which is really wonderful and I guess it draws us back to the story of mermaids the fact that the little mermaid had her voice taken away there's something really powerful about being able to work with mermaids, quite literally, mm. to give a voice back.
0: Mm. Yeah, and unlike the painting that we started this discussion from, which is voiceless and static, this is a, a piece that talks and interacts with you as the visitor, and also with the other pieces around it in a kind of dialogue, Exactly. fashion.
1: So yeah, the, the the kind of the narrative of this is that uh, what well, I'm trying to tell everyone, everyone that will listen, <laughs> is that the rainbow flag is a powerful symbol and it was created and it has a wonderful story but i also think that alongside the uh, rainbow flag let's not dismiss the mermaid mm-hmm. because the mermaid has this power to appeal to m- pretty much every facet of of queer identity mm-hmm. we're talking about the l the g the b the t the q and the plus we're talking about around the world gender and sexuality and fluidity mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And it's something a little bit more tangible than maybe a rainbow in the sense of like a person.
1: It has. Yes, it has. It has a voice. It Mm -hmm. has a face. And and also maybe it talks a bit about our power Mm -hmm. and also our lack of power Mm -hmm. you know a mermaid is a powerful being just like Queen Elizabeth you know conjurer of storms and siren of the sea and powerless it is abused it has its has its voice silenced Mm -hmm. um, and it can't fully be part of this world yeah
0: oh fantastic thank you Sasha this has been really interesting
1: my pleasure
0: do you have anything you would like to add
1: i would like to say that next time you go to a museum go mermaid hunting Um, and so mermaid hunting uh, just basically means look for mermaids but also look for any stories that are partially submerged Um, look between the the cracks look for the scales where they're hidden um, and you'll find that every single collection that you can imagine will have wonderful and beautiful queer stories
0: fantastic If people want to learn more about your work, Sasha, where can they find you online?
1: I yabber away at Sasha Downspace Coward. That's S-A-C-H-A Downspace C-O-W-A-R-D on Twitter. Um, I talk about mermaids all the ruddy time
0: excellent so if i want my mermaid fix i'll be coming to find you on twitter
1: exactly and also um, a big shout out to mermaids uk uh, the transgender youth group we've been talking about a lot you can support them in many different ways Um, i do actually have a fundraiser running on my um, page it'll be running all the way through to january Um, and also just get in touch they are magnificent and they do incredible work
0: thank you so much for being here sasha it's been great to talk to you cheers And that's it for this episode of behind the glass cabinet thanks to nicolette chin my editor and producer thanks to sam lee the composer for the track of this podcast and thank you to the university college of london department for culture and the department for science and technology studies without whom this podcast would not have been possible i've been ellie armstrong you can find me online at, at ellie the thanks for listening